Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. Yes, there is good news, and here are a few verses that might be helpful to you. Here's what you got to know. God loves you anyway. He's with you anyway. So let's kind of unpack this and look at the tenses just a little bit. Oh, that's a good question. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. We have the good fortune of attempting, at least, to answer your Bible questions. We appreciate receiving them, and we'll do our level best to give you a Bible answer for the questions you have of a biblical nature. To get questions to us, please do that. Line Upon Line at IIW.org. Line Upon Line at IIW.org, and we will give you the opportunity to submit those and have them answered here. You know, the good thing is, if you've had the question, undoubtedly somebody else has as well. So many benefit from your inquisitiveness or curiosity. Joining me, Eric Flickinger. Welcome. Good to see you, John. Good to be seen. Thanks for being here. I have a question for you from Max. If Lucifer was cast out of heaven, how was he in heaven, as mentioned in Job? This question comes from Job chapter 1, and specifically verse number 6. Here's what Job 1 verse 6 says. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So who are these sons of God? Where did this, this meeting, gathering take place, if we know? And what in the world is Satan doing there? It has been speculated. It has been postulated. It has been calculated that these sons of God were the representative, uh, representatives of the worlds in the universe. Mm. It's not super easy to make that claim from the Bible. There's not a verse that says, and by the way, this was the case. Right. But it seems that that indeed may be the case. So what that would indicate then is that Satan had a right to be there as, as it were, the, the owner, the ruler of this world. Mm -hmm. The world was fallen at that stage. Keep in mind, too, that this little passage comes in the context of the great controversy as revealed in the book of Job. Uh, Job, who made the claim, oh, he's not really all you say he is. God says, go ahead, afflict him, don't take his life. We got to see the the behind-the-scenes activity in that story of Job's suffering there. So in that context, uh, uh, representatives of the worlds from around the universe come, and Satan, therefore, as the ruler of this world, was among them. Yep, it's interesting. In verse number 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Right. He knew where everybody else came from. Well, I mean, of course, he knew where, where Satan came from, too, but he's giving the opportunity. Where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now, there's another point that we've got to keep in mind. The question from Max said, if Lucifer was cast out of heaven, how was he in heaven as mentioned in Job? Mm. But, but Max, Job doesn't mention that Lucifer was in heaven, doesn't mention that anyone was in heaven. It's reasonable to assume that this meeting took place in heaven, but we don't have to assume that. So it may be that Satan wasn't in heaven at all, and this meeting took place somewhere else. That's a possibility. Barry asks, how long will the exchange from sinful flesh to purely perfect in every way, take to occur. All right. Wouldn't it be nice if it happened just like that right now? I oh, think yeah. that would be uh, that would be ideal. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that it happens just like that right now, but 
There are some interesting passages here. I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse number 51. This will give us a place to start anyway. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 says, Behold, this is Paul writing, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So So that's pretty simple. It happens just like that. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye when jesus comes when jesus comes back but does that mean that we should just continue living our sin cursed and sinful and downfallen lives right now and just say "Ah, you know when jesus comes back he's going to make me perfect nothing to do till that day you've heard that absolutely you've heard people say i don't need to do nothing about my sin and the lifestyle i'm living because jesus will take Mm -hmm. care of that when he comes back and it's true, he will. Yep. But how's he going to take care of that when he comes back? Because if you attach yourself to sin and you don't let go and you don't welcome Jesus into your heart in a way that you've surrendered your life to him, um, that's not salvation. That's exactly. not a salvation experience. Yep. So that change is going to take place from, from the fallen, from, from, from this flesh to whatever heavenly flesh looks like. That's going to take place just like that when Jesus comes back. But... We want to grow in grace. Mm -hmm. We want to mature in preparation for the harvest. We want to develop a Christian character. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to get sin out of our lives through the power and presence of our God and have Christ fill us more and more and more with his righteousness. So let's not separate those two thoughts out. You might, one might lead to Christian carelessness and we wouldn't want to see that. Eric, question for you. Mm -hmm. What is the use for the tree of life? as the resurrected saints will have glorious bodies that will never perish? This question is asked by Jean-Pierre. Well, Jean-Pierre, that is an excellent question. And I think the best way to answer it is to, to kind of look back at what happened in the Garden of Eden. You'll remember that God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the Garden of Eden. And there were all sorts of trees and bushes and flowers and lovely things in the garden, but there were two trees, two special trees in the garden. One was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other one was called the tree of life. Now, as we know the sad story, Adam and Eve made some poor choices, and they had to exit the garden. When they did, the Bible says that God placed an angel there to keep them out with a a flaming sword in his hand, to keep them out of the garden of Eden so that they could not access the tree of life. Now, why? Well, the tree of life, God gives life. He is the source of all life. But this tree of life had special properties. Once they no longer had access to the tree of life, they no longer had access, as it were, to immortality. They died. In the very end of time, we still are reliant upon God. He's going to restore this tree of life and we will have access to the tree of life. There are two types of immortality. It might be good to, uh, to understand. One of them is conditional immortality. Sure. The other is unconditional immortality. God has that. God has that. God is the only one who has unconditional immortality. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, 6, 
It says, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in approachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. God has unconditional immortality. He he is life, and he gives life to others. We have conditional immortality, very different than unconditional immortality. That's right. Even throughout eternity, our immortality is going to be dependent on God. It's not like, now I can go off someplace, establish my own universe, and I don't need God. Mm. Now, here's what I don't know. I don't know if when you get into the New Jerusalem, if you go a week without eating from the tree of life, but you eat from somewhere else, if the batteries are going to start getting flat and you're going to start getting desperate. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if you must eat from this in order to have everlasting life. Somehow doubt it. But what we know is that this at least acts as a symbol demonstrating that we are still dependent upon God. Clearly it's there. Clearly we're to eat from it. No question about that. We get lost on those details. But as the Bible talks about this and phrases that, it's helping us to understand that even throughout eternity, our life, our immortal life, will be uh, dependent upon the blessing and the goodness of Almighty God. Right. Got another question here. This is a great question from Jacqueline. And Jacqueline asks, in Revelation 19, verse 10, what is the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy? Oh my, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, why don't we look at it this way? Revelation 12, 17 says, The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus right. Christ. In fact, one of the reasons the devil wars against the remnant is because they have the testimony of That's Jesus. Right. He does not want them having that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't want them listening. But then you get to Revelation chapter 19, and I'll turn there right now. Revelation chapter 19 and uh, verse 10, which just takes that and I think spells it out a little bit. Revelation 19.10, I fell at his feet to worship him. He said to me, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It means the gift of prophecy. And you'll find that spelled out over there, and I believe it's 1 Corinthians. The gift of prophecy. So in the end of time, God's people have in their midst the gift of prophecy. And we've been blessed to have that basically down through time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moses was a prophet, Isaac was a prophet, Abraham was a prophet, um, Gad was a prophet, unnamed prophets were prophets. Sure. Uh, John was a prophet, Daniel was a prophet. They had the, the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, the message that God gives, the testimony that Jesus testifies through an earthly person, that testimony is the spirit of prophecy, or put it another way, the spiritual gift of prophecy. That's right. And as we get closer to the return of Jesus, which is a huge event in the Bible timeline, you can expect that part of what God has done in the past is he would call up another prophet or more prophets as we get closer to that big event. He did it before the flood. He did it before uh, the return to Babel or from Babylon uh, to the homeland of the of the Jewish people. He He did it all through the Bible, calling up prophets in advance of big events. Jesus is coming back. That's a big event. Yes, it is. Surely the Lord would do nothing except he reveals his secrets through his servants, the prophets, Amos 3, and I believe it's verse 7. Mm -hmm. And there's that verse that I was referencing in 1 Corinthians earlier. He was writing to the church in Corinth, 
He said that in everything you're enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ, here we are again, was confirmed in you so that you, be, so that you come behind in no gift. The testimony of Christ, the testimony of Jesus, the spirit or the gift of prophecy. Jacqueline, outstanding question and we're grateful. Well, you know what happens when you've got a brief moment of time left? Mm. The person who writes the question gets short shrift. Yep. Or we could waffle for a minute, but we're not going to do that because we'll use this minute in the most valuable way we can. Maybe we'll get partway through this. Let's see how, let's see how you do. <laughs> this is a question from Ryan. How does God fairly judge cases of people who die young and don't get a chance to, turn, uh, to learn or turn around their lives? That's a great question, and it really comes back to the character of God. What kind of a God is God? Does God want people to be lost, or does God want to be people to be saved? I want to take a look at uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Here's what 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 says. It says that God desires that all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in the heart of God is a beating desire to have everybody be saved. He's looking to save people, not to not save people. Right. So if there's a way for people to be saved, then he wants to find that way. Uh, Ryan, how does God fairly judge cases of people who die young and don't get a chance to learn or turn their lives around? He just does. He's God. We can trust him to do the right thing. This is Line Upon Line brought to you by It Is Written. We will be back with more of your questions in just a moment. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Wes Youngberg, and I've just written a book called Memory Makeover, How to Prevent Alzheimer's and Reverse Cognitive Decline. This book is in story form. It's case studies of individuals that I've worked with and my colleagues have worked with where they've actually been able to stop cognitive decline, and 80% of the time have been able to reverse aspects of cognitive decline. If you want to know more about that, get the book Memory Makeover. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Thank you again for sending us your questions. We appreciate it, and others appreciate it, because they've got the same questions that you do. And here comes a good one. This one comes from Rick. Right on. And Rick says, when God destroys the wicked or unsaved, who are they? Would they include children who died before the age of accountability, or the mentally handicapped, or educated people who haven't honestly come to the conclusion that God exists? Who are the wicked that God destroys the unsaved. Yeah, when you start dividing it up like that, you can get into some delicate areas, can't you? Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever does not believe in him, therefore, uh, will not be saved and not have everlasting life. You know that God, as I think we we mentioned earlier, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, Mm. his will is that everybody would be saved, but he's not going to force somebody 
to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. See, here's the thing, uh, Rick. Evidently, you are aware that God has spoken to your heart, and you know that he has, and you've seen some type of revelation of God. Maybe you've looked at nature and said, well, there's a God. But what you and I are doing now is we're looking at other people and we're saying, have they had that same opportunity? Well, the answer is that by the time they die, yes, they will have had that same opportunity. Fascinating, Eric. I was reading recently, and I wish I could remember the name of this academic, a very high-flying, award-winning academic who wrote, he's a well-known atheist, and he said, I wish I could believe in God. He said, there's something comforting about believing that when you're dead, that's not the end, that you're going to see your family. He said, that idea appeals to me, Mm. but I just can't bring myself to believing that. He was raised as a Jew. I recently heard a fellow, and this is interesting, he was a a well-known entertainer talking about why he doesn't believe in God. Frankly, the reasons that he gave against Christianity were flimsy. They were just terrible. And unfortunately, you know, thousands or even millions of people will listen to this man intone about why there's no God and maybe be influenced by his pathetic arguments. I mean, they were weak. Mm. It wasn't anything that made you stop and think. But clearly he's thought about it as well. And he's an intelligent man and has had the opportunity to investigate. So Rick's friends who might be educated and haven't honestly come to the conclusion that God exists, well, that's good enough, you know, or bad enough. They've honestly had the opportunity. Listen, if this book is true, if there's a God If you wonder, pick it up. Read the Bible and find out for yourself. It's not something you want to dilly-dally around with. So the point being, people have opportunity. Right. Well, now you're going to talk about people who may be developmentally disabled and so forth. You know what we're going to do? We're going to let God decide what to do in in those cases, and God will know. And by the way, simply because somebody is developmentally disabled or isn't playing with the same deck of cards that you're playing with, doesn't mean they cannot know and love God and have a a very, very meaningful Christian experience. So we've got to be careful about that. Although I'm sure you were saying there are some people who who cannot. God's going to decide that, and I trust that God will decide fairly. So I think in answer to the question, who are the wicked or unsaved? Those who have chosen not to choose Jesus. They've chosen not to choose Jesus as Lord and Savior, and God understands. Again, come back to my original point. You and I have had the opportunity, Rick, and we're looking at others and saying, have they had the opportunity? God will see to it that either they have or or had, and we'll trust God to work it out with them. Yep. Great. Here's a question from James. James says, Philippians 2.10 says, that the name of that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. What does under the earth mean? <laughs> that a great who are question. these folk? Coal miners. Yeah. <laughs> these are people who who don't get out into the, to the light very much. They're exactly. a little pale, a little bit pasty. <laughs> so, you know the Bible. They? Bible uses a similar phrase as elsewhere. I'll read one to you. Revelation five three. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. In the commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, in the earth beneath, in the water or under the earth, or that is in the water under the earth. So, so the Bible uses this phrase. What's the Bible getting at? Are there folks, subterranean uh, cave dwellers, catacombs, what? 
No, these this is everybody in the world. It's it's an all-encompassing phrase that he is using to describe every person around the world. Uh, I suppose if we wanted to to take it incredibly literally, we could say if we're on the top of the earth, there are people under the earth on the other side too. It's it just means everybody. So everybody is going to have the opportunity or in in fact will bow the knee to Christ. When is that going to take place? Ooh, really interesting, isn't it? You know, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, at the end of the millennium, mm. Jesus comes back. There's a 1,000-year time period spent in heaven for the saved, and then the saved come down from heaven to the earth in that city. Then there's another resurrection, and all the lost people who've been destroyed asleep, as it were, for a thousand years, are going to be raised up. Now, they're about to be destroyed. There's something really disquieting about somebody going to the, uh, receiving the death penalty mm-hmm. and maintaining their innocence, you know? Right. There's something a little unsettling about that because you just wonder. But here, the people who are, who are destroyed in the lake of fire at the end, not a one of them will maintain their innocence. Mm-hmm. At the, at, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of the lost will say, God was right, and it was me that was wrong. God was true, and I was on the wrong side of this. It's sobering. You don't want to be among that group confessing and bowing and lost. Just easier to say, there's a good God. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. I've got everlasting life right here at my fingertips. I'm going to embrace it and grab it. Live the absolute most productive, joyful life I can right now, because that's Christianity, and live with Jesus as my best friend, knowing that ahead is a forever awesome future. Eric. John, you hit something here. You covered it quickly, this 1,000-year period, this millennium. Sure. You covered it in about 45 seconds. If somebody wanted to dig into it a little bit more, unpack it and understand the millennium a little bit better, what could they do to do that? You know what? Two things. One, go online. It is written dot study. Study through our uh, Bible studies, Bible study guides. They're tremendous. You'll be able to study all about the millennium there. And uh, go online to it is written dot TV. Go down to the Revelation Today tab and you'll be able to pull up uh, a, a 45, 55 minute long study that will take you deep into the millennium. Or get your Bible out, read Revelation chapter 20 and uh, follow from there. Terrific, terrific study. Thanks for that. James is asking, are the Ten Commandments in heaven the same Ten Commandments written on stone that the Lord gave to Moses? All right, great question. What about those Ten Commandments? God has them in heaven. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. That might be a little mystery to some of the angels because Jesus said the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. So is that one of the commandments that the angels need to keep? Well, Keep in mind that the Ten Commandments are, it's often been said that they are a transcript of God's character. They show us who God is, that he is indeed love. Now, depending on the context, there may be some different content, if you will. The angels don't have to worry about about, uh, adultery. We do. And so God has expressed his love uh, to us, for us, in the Ten Commandments that we are familiar with. So, That certainly applies to us, not so much to angels. But you're looking at the character of God. Yep, and so wherever you are, whatever corner of this universe you are in, the Ten Commandments are applicable. They are universal. Now, if you are saying, are they the very same rocks? 
The answer is no, we don't think they're the very same rocks. They were put in the Ark of the Covenant and were secreted away somewhere. When I say rocks, I mean the stones on which the commandments were written. But Revelation 11 tells us that the Ark of His testimony was seen in heaven, and inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments. And so, yes, same commandments exist in heaven as existed on earth, not the exact same literal two tables of stone. I wonder if and when they'll be found. That'll be fun. But you can know that in heaven those same principles exist because wherever God is, His character doesn't alter, and the Ten Commandments are a transcript of the character of God. That's a good question. Great one. Here we have one from Jim. What does it mean when it says to make your calling and election sure in Second Peter 1, verse number 10? Jim, why don't we read it together? Let's do that. Let's read the verse. I, I, li- I like the idea of the verse. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, and so forth. If these things be in you and abound, they make you neither barren nor unfruitful, so forth. He that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. The Bible writer is encouraging you to make sure that you are saved, to make sure that you're in a saving relationship with Jesus. So that's accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. You say that with your mouth, you think that with your mind, and then surrendering to him and allowing his character to be more and more and more and more formed in you as you grow in the grace of God. Peter is saying this is important. These instructions I'm giving, this counsel I'm giving, these words that I'm writing here that you're reading from my letter to you, we're not playing here. So if these things be in you and abound, that's what we want to see. So give diligence, give dil- be careful about this. Make your calling and election sure. Make certain that you are in the right place, the right relationship with God, and that you're growing in His grace. Well said. Excellent. We've got uh, one more here. We may try to give a quick answer to it, if we possibly can, from Susan. Is the rapture just for believers? Oh, well, that's interesting. It depends how you want to frame that. Uh, The rapture, we are referring to the return of Jesus when the saints are caught up. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul wrote that to the church in Thessalonica. When Jesus comes back, we are taken to be with him, and we go up. Yes. It is anything but secret. This no. is This is the big, the pinnacle of everything that has happened in the Bible. It's Jesus returning to take his saints home. So all of the righteous are going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. They will go up to heaven with him where they will spend a thousand years and eventually then come back and inherit an earth made new. But the wicked are not going to get a second chance. It's popular today, even within Christianity, to have the idea that the wicked are going to get a second chance. That's not the picture we get in the Bible, though, is it? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Revelation, I mean, this is this is sobering, sobering. In Revelation chapter 6, the Bible says that the lost say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throat and from the wrath of the Lamb. When Jesus comes back, the lost are lost. Is the rapture for believers? I mean, only believers will be saved. But anybody could be saved if they surrender to Jesus. And we hope you'll do that. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Good to be here, John. Thank you for joining us. Remember, Jesus wants your heart. 
You surrender to him. That's his will. That's why Jesus died for you. Be sure to join us again for more next time on Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.